Hey, I'm Peter Medlin, and you're listening to Teacher's Lounge. If you've never heard the show before, good news, it's a pretty simple concept. We talk to inspirational educators, and every educator that we have on our show is nominated by the people that listen. We think that everyone has had a teacher, coach, or professor that help them become the person that they are today. And we want to hear about that person. So tell us about who comes to your mind when we say that. Shoot us an email at teacherslounge at niu.edu and they could be featured on the next episode of the show. Today on the podcast, we have Marcel Walker. He's a comic book artist and teacher extraordinaire. He helped create the educational comic series, Hoots Pow, Superheroes of the Holocaust with the Holocaust Center of Pittsburgh. And he serves on the board of Toonzeum, which is a museum of comics and cartoons there. Marcel and I are also just really huge comic book junkies and had a lot of fun just, you know, talking about the history of comics and education, especially around civil rights and Holocaust comics. It's a really amazing conversation. So without any further ado, let's just jump into it, sit back, relax, and enjoy my conversation with the amazing, spectacular, how many more comics adjectives can I fit in, Marcel Walker. I'm a massive comics fan, and I never get to talk about any of this in any kind of remotely professional capacity. So I, I, I hope that we just like, part of me is like, well, I don't want to go too in the weeds, but part of me is like, I hope that me and Marcel just talk comics for an hour. It's totally fine. Like I, it's funny, like the person, I, so I just got off the phone or got off a of Zoom with somebody who's she's doing a doctoral study over at the University of Leicester in England Mm. and she's she's talking to all sorts of people about the holocaust in comics narratives and education and she just found Hutzpah out there in the world and and when she and she's talking to people people like she's talking to some folks at Anne Frank house and just like all sorts of places I was like okay yeah I need to talk to her I was telling her like my life like comics intersect so much because there's like there's comics there's my work with nonprofits. there's my work as a as a practicing artist there's my work as a like as an educator and you know so much of my life is in that the middle of that venn diagram so there's always something that's interconnected with something else but man comics is so much a part of my my vocabulary like i've heard it said that Jimi hendrix said that he thought in music right um, and there's another musician i'm trying to think who it is it's a female musician and it's totally escaping right now but she made the same claim like she thought in in music tori amos she said that i totally believe that because i think in comics like all the time and i i i joke that everything in my life comes back to superman it's not a joke everything comes back everything comes back to Superman, including the sweatshirt yeah and i think that a blanket behind you this i think a blanket happened. behind you too in the background oh yeah yeah like you should see it's it's like absurd but uh, again and again like i'm actually i actually consider my fascination with superman to be a blessing because again and again and again it gives me the language and the the ability to form analogies that kind of cut through, cut through the clutter of light, like where I'm able to say like, look, it's like this. And I hold up some aspect of When we're off this, when we're, I'm done with this one today, my next Zoom is with some folks at the Contemporary Jewish Museum out in San Francisco. Mm-hmm. They made me aware of a sculptor who had done these exhibits of the Bottle City of Candor. No kidding. And and I, I had no idea about this. So they sent me these images because they had done an exhibit that featured them. And I mean, they are bottle cities of Candor and they're lighted and they're beautiful. And so they, they're they doing a whole feature on that for this coming Sunday. And they asked me to write some background text. So I'm writing all this stuff up and I, it, I love articulating stuff like that that I tend to think of anyway. So I'm like, I'm talking about Superman, but I'm talking about him in this much larger historical context so it's like here's superman's in comic book history like that's what they asked me to write up yes but then you see like there it is very analogous it's analogous to like people who have been adopted it's analogous to our to to people who've come to america as refugees hey i can relate as a small town midwestern journalist right 
you get it. Yeah. You totally get it. <laughs> yeah, it. Like journalism, like you can talk about, in my mind, you can talk about anything through the well, lens of comics, anything. I, I think it's fascinating. And I, I do want to get back to what you said about like thinking in comics, because that, that reminded me of something else too. But the Superman thing, you know, I, I wanted to talk about this, obviously, with your work with the Holocaust Center. And I saw with the with Toonzeum, with the, you know, the exhibition that you guys did with John Lewis, mm -hmm. talking about comics as a social force, right? I think about Superman and how that was mm -hmm. from his creation in the late 30s on, which is like really like busting up corrupt bankers and like women beaters and like, you know, corruption all the way, you know, by two, you know, Jewish men from Cleveland that created them. And then I think about the, one of the top five selling comics of 2020 of last year was Superman Smashes the Klan uh -huh. by Gene Lu and Yang. So it's, it's, it stretches the entire history of Superman being this social force, right? I tend to view all superheroes like superman got it was like my first and just in and that never waned that never went away like that was the dude but then you know i love most superheroes and i actually kind of hate when i get drawn into those arguments with like you know marcel you know batman's cooler than superman like oh my god you know he's not you know, he's not you know like we're on, the, we're on the right side of history with the superman thing we are i learned a long time ago you can you can discover a lot about a person if you find out like who's their favorite character? And I'm gonna say specifically like their favorite superhero if they've got one. Mm -hmm. so, and I, I can tell you mine. I can tell you mine if you want who to. Who is yours? I want to know. You want to actually I have a background thing too. We have a giant poster that was like a comic shop poster from the early 90s, and it's hung up right next to me. Let's see if you can get it in frame really quick. Okay. Let's, let's see. Let's see if we get it. It's nice. A, it's a Tim Drake poster. Nice. This is exactly what I'm talking about. It's a, it's it's him and Dick Grayson. It's the Robins, so they're always good for me. Again, you can tell, I feel like you can tell so much about a person by that, which you just showed me. By the way, nice choice. Tim Drake and Dick Grayson, they are, I, I could go on at length about all these characters. Again, Marcel, I want to go on it. Like, <laughs> So I, I remember I had this group of kids once and I learned, there's some things I learned very, very quickly and I'm glad, like they were good things. Like just like the line between authority and friendship and whatever, and but also, when it came to this specific topic, like who, who, favorite characters, I tried never ever to show favoritism towards anybody's characters. Like I would never say like, why do you like this character or, or, or that one really? Or Dr. You know, Fate like, really? Yeah, yeah exactly. <laughs> yeah. Like let them, they're allowed to like who they like. And that's good. Like generally speaking, it's healthy. Only time I ever became like, I'm going to say an adult adult with that is if it was like, like an 11 year old who's fascinated with the Punisher is like, you know, I don't, I remember this one boy, I, you know, actually we were going around the room and, and it gets to him and he was maybe eight, eight or nine ish, nine at the most. I go, so who's your favorite? And he goes, Toro, like old Marvel character. Like, really? So Toro was the original human torches sidekick back in the 1930s, right. 40s. Android, human, Android human torch, Jim You're, Hammond, Jim Hammond. Boom. I got you. Well played. <laughs> That's it. You got it. This is it. This is perfect. I love talking with people who just get it. I don't have to give all the backstory. So he says, it's, like I said, this is, you know, a, like an eight, nine-year-old. And I go, where did you find about Toro? So his parents had just recently purchased him this big, like, compendium encyclopedia thing about the history of Marvel comics. And he was reading that thing. And he said he found this entry on Toro and he just locked it. And that was his dude. And I was just like, that was amazing. Like just blew my mind. Like that this kid saw something in that character who was, you know, like essentially an obscure character for decades. For sure. That was his dude. And it just like melted my heart. And so I never try to, to, to speak down to anybody, adult or kid, but especially kids based on, the characters because there is some quality no matter what that is causing them to latch on to that and you know i've explored my own fascination with superman over the years and i i could definitely pinpoint some things you know like superman represents stability mm. and in my formative years like my family life it was it was very unstable you know it wasn't traumatic there were elements of, of trauma throughout there but it was more than anything, it was very unstable. And I realize now that like Superman, no matter where I encountered him, whether it was in the comics, 
or an animated animation, you know, on Super Friends or or the old uh, Adventures of Superman TV show. Superman was Superman was Superman. Def- he he was always rock solid. And you know, and I I I say I was eight years old when the first Christopher Reeve movie came out, and it was just the best. Like you couldn't like I. There are areas of thought that belief systems were that we pick the lives that we lead, you know, before yeah. we come here and we're posited in the life, like we pick where we want to be. And I think, you know, if that's, if there's any truth to that, I feel like I picked this life so I could be eight years old when Christopher Reeve debuted as Superman. I really think there might be something to that. <laughs> Which is a movie that holds up really well. It's the performance, you yeah. know? I'm, well, I'm interested in, you know, you talked about, you know, being a DC kid. And do you remember what the first book that you able you put, picked up was? No, I remember a number that were like in that window yeah. that, that were in that period, but I don't, I can't remember the first book. I, I was reading an article doing some research for our interview. And I think there was a story that you told in there talking about how early on, I think it was like your aunt had a bunch of comics or like had them spread out. And you had your cousin was was picking out ones. And I think this is a very early one where you were, we could talk about Marvel and DC and lack of diversity and everything that your cousin was like, hey, give me the one that looks with the guy that looks like me on the cover. Hand, hand me the one with the brother on the cover. That one I remember specifically. That yeah. was Tales of the New Teen Titans number one because it had Cyborg on the cover. And he's, oh, you know, he, he, you know, asked, I mean, we were just sitting at, at the at the dining room table. And he asked me to forward that along to him, like just to hand it down to him. Like in that moment, like it connected because I'll admit I lived in a very in in a lot of ways for all the disruption in my my home life and all of the like I said, the incidents of trauma. And I lived with a number of different relatives over the years. But in many ways, my upbringing was very blissful. There's a lot of things I just didn't have to just didn't think about because of the way I was brought up. And I admittedly, when I was young, young, didn't think about race that much so when i encountered comics also at that time you didn't think too much about like the people behind the scenes like who made them like what did they look like because nowadays with media like you can just find anything anytime right these people were just names and books at that time so you know while you got more and more familiar with this person writing this series or this group of characters or whatever you know i didn't really have an impression of what the creators looked like and i maybe had like a burgeoning sense of the lack of inclusivity and uh and representation in comics but it was still it was you know very underdeveloped so long story short like i never imagined anything but like me being able to create the characters i wanted to or whatever but when my cousin said that thing about you know hand me that book with the brother on the cover like some synapses fired like oh that's that's important like that's a thing like like other people don't see this in the way that i do like that's it's important for people to see that um, yeah. it like it awoke something with me like my own perceptions with this which never went away you know which is good but you know superman was still my dude and well i think he- it's i do think and this is something that we touched on a little bit earlier but i do think it's really fascinating when we talk about what we have with your work with with the, the holocaust center we talk about comics and about and, and, and what we mentioned with superman before you know i think about like comics on one hand has kind of always been a medium that's on the fringes, right, that bucks the status quo. We talk about whether it be Superman or Marvel in the 60s or, you know, Persepolis, like Marjean Satrasi's books, things like that. But then on the other hand, it's like the big companies like Marvel and DC are these big corporate entities that often really do botch, you know, diversity or have these really bad stereotypes in books. And I think it's it's really interesting. Like, I'm curious for you right now, thinking about it, like in 2021, like how do you see comics place as like a subversive medium that is able to confront these things? My work with Hood's Pal yeah. has been transformative because like I knew at six years old, I wanted to make comics, but I had no idea of, you know, you don't understand how life works at six. Yeah. You're not supposed to really, you know, at six, it's supposed to be undeveloped and you're supposed to learn. But I started to learn gradually. Like I said, you know, I started making submissions in my teens and that's the thing I've had to kind of reconcile myself to with these things that I love. They are owned by corporate entities and they serve ultimately capitalistic. So like, all right, but I can still love them at the core for what they are and that's okay. But 
and, and again, when I was six, I didn't have to think about any of that. I was just able to love them because I love them. But I get older and opportunities present themselves. And I find myself now working for the Holocaust Center of Pittsburgh. Right, which again is fascinating when you think about just the history of comics when we're talking about the Holocaust, because it immediately people think Mouse and Art Spiegelman, which is you know the first comic ever to win a Pulitzer Prize. So there is, even in comics, a history of Holocaust educational related material. Absolutely. You know, so I've, I've read up and studied more. And when you look at how the Holocaust narrative started to bubble up in American comics, first you get roughly a decade or so after the end of the war, maybe not even that, but when you first started seeing the Holocaust being acknowledged in comics, you first start seeing them acknowledged in two types of comics, military themed comics and horror comics. Mm, right. And that makes a lot of sense when you think about it, like of all the places you're going to see it, like what, what are the, the lenses that we would be looking at the Holocaust through? Trauma, it's, right. yeah. it's going to be horror and it's going to be the military. And then you move forward a little bit more and then you started seeing even more narratives. Like it started, uh, it started manifesting through more mainstream medium or mainstream genres, I should say, uh, particularly superheroes. So you started seeing the first stories where you had oftentimes background players and background characters who had, you know, been Holocaust survivors or they've been involved, they've been at the war. And you, as long as you had characters also like your Captain Americas and your Nick Furies and your Sergeant Rocks who had been directly involved in World War II and those characters were continuing to be published, narratives were gonna intersect with the Holocaust. But then you move into the 80s and you start, things started being even more pronounced. You know, people often, they cite Magneto being, you know, being declared a Holocaust survivor. So that's a transformative moment. That's a watershed moment. But Mouse, yes, Mouse is the thing that gets referenced all the time when, when, uh, when I have discussions about Hutzpah. And rightly so. And I, I totally understand it because it's such a powerful narrative and what it accomplished was so singular that you, Mouse is to graphic prose Holocaust narratives. And I use the term graphic prose as kind of an umbrella term for the world of comics. Right. Um, Mouse is to that as Superman is to superheroes. Like it was this first formative thing. And they have things that were like, that, that came before them but it's only because those things came along that we even have language to talk about the things that came before them in the same way. So like Mouse, Mouse put this on the landscape in such a way that that is always at the forefront of people's thinking with Holocaust and graphic prose works. Part of the thinking behind Hutzpah's creation was there are three notable Holocaust works of literature that get utilized again and again and again in classrooms. Now there's a myriad of works, but the three, the big ones that get utilized are Diary of Anne Frank, Night by Elie Wiesel, and Mouse. And they're all wonderful works and they should be, you know, looked at in, in, in academia and, and in scholastic settings. Like they should absolutely be utilized. The thing about all three of those is none of them were created for that purpose. They were, they have been utilized for that, but they were designed as memoirs. Right. So from the outset, the idea with Hutzpah was we are, let's create something that is specifically designed to be used in academic settings, in scholastic settings that educators can use with their students to facilitate Holocaust learning. And it's also designed like it, it inhabits two worlds because it's also designed at the same time to be accessible to general audiences. So you don't have to be sitting in a classroom or you know preparing for tests or anything to read Hutzpah and get something out of it and appreciate it for what it is. You could walk into a comic store, find it or go online, go on Amazon and you know you order this book and enjoy it for what it is and learn it for what it is. So it, it's a pretty heady goal when you think about it to decide like I'm going to make this thing we're going to make this thing together that's going to reform Holocaust education and, and like change the perspective. But that was literally our talking and our thinking at the outset. And ultimately, they, they made the decision, this would have been late 2013, to do two things. They wanted to make a comic book and a companion art exhibit. The two things kind of go hand in hand. Utilizing comics art forms to depict these narratives and to reposition the lens of Holocaust survivors and those who went through it from being victims to being heroes. And I imagine that's why 
you guys are choosing to frame it with the language of superheroes. Absolutely. That's exactly it. And we had to be clear from the outset, you know, we were not intending to tell superhero stories in the Holocaust, because that was a question we often got. You know, during World War II, our American superheroes in our comics were like they were used for propaganda and, and you right. know, that, Captain that America would, punching Hitler, that sort of thing. The most memorable example, exactly. We weren't looking to do anything like that. We wanted to tell the real stories of real people. And the comic book that we were that we created told stories of people who had ultimately settled here in Pittsburgh. So it was a very regional project in that regard. Now the art exhibit portion of, uh, of the Hutzpah project focused on more internationally known figures like the Bielski brothers, Sophie Scholl, uh, Rena Sendler, Raoul Wallenberg. So these are people who had, I'm gonna say more renown and their stories were, were more well, well known. I was involved in both parts of this. So I got involved, what was that? Like it would have been probably early 2014 when the decision was made to start reaching out to creators to bring them on board the project. Fortunately, the best thing that they did though was they brought in people who actually worked on comics. Like it was not like professionally, this wasn't a hobby. None of us were hobbyists. We did it. We understood how to make real comics like this. And we birthed the comic, all of us together. And it was wonderful. And we had this great release party in August of 2014. And the community really came out in force for it. It was like hundreds of people that came to our release party. It was crazy. Uh, but even then, I didn't really realize what my role was going to evolve into because I'm still working in, at that point in the mode of creator on this series. We produced another issue. By the time we'd finished that issue, um, some discussions had been made on their end, and I was actually invited to come on staff at the Holocaust Center to formally work as the as the Hutzpah project coordinator. And that allowed me to really, really help integrate the project into the work at the center, which included lots of interaction with regional educators and students and just the general public, the local Jewish community. Um, so it, my world just became bigger, <laughs> and Hutzpah became a bigger part of it. And, uh, and it'll, and I've grown because of that. Well, I'm curious for you personally too. I mean, like you've been an arts educator for a long, long time. Mm. And now you're on the other side of that in making materials, you know, purposely for education, right. And getting to interact with those educators. I'm curious how this project has changed your perspective or philosophy as an educator, as an arts educator. It certainly informed it even more. Sure. One of the best compliments I ever got from a parent, and this was, again, this was years ago, but as a parent, I had, I was, at the time, I had both their son and daughter in one of my uh, ongoing workshops. And she said to me, this is the best writing and language class that my kids have ever taken. That was amazing because I have always had a big focus on developing writing skills, language arts skills, communication skills, almost above the ability to just like be able to draw. And like, I, it, it's the difference between fun and joy. You know, like, yes, I want to cultivate a fun experience whenever possible. I've, I've been focusing on this a lot lately, but fun is ephemeral. It comes, you walk through it and it's gone. And you're not meant to sustain fun for but so long. But joy, I think that is sustainable and we can de derive joy from things that aren't necessarily fun. The Holocaust is obviously not fun. It's heavy and it can be overwhelming and you know it's, it's hard. But when you encounter something like chutzpah or the right kind of programming, it takes difficult subject matter and it pulls you into it in such a way that you leave a better person for it. Like you, you are more, you are better informed about the world. You are more understanding, hopefully about the world. It will hopefully make you more empathetic of other human beings. There's joy to be found in that. And also when you're encountering the handiwork of people who are tremendously talented and skilled, or you're a person, one of those people who are making that work, there is joy in that. And I look at Hutzpah much the same way. Like there's joy from knowing that this, this beautiful thing was created by human beings with their actual hands and minds and hearts. And there's joy to know that there are educators that are using this powerful tool with their students and, and they're catalyzing them to action with this thing. 
I, I consider Hutzpah to be a spiritual successor to books like the Montgomery story, which was published in the 1950s that told the story yeah. of the Montgomery bus boycotts and Martin Luther King Jr. Now that book, as far as I'm concerned, is the single most important comic book American comic book that's ever been published. Marcel, you are professional because that is the perfect segue to what I was just going to ask you about, which was literally going to talk about, you know, you mentioned the Toonzeum a couple times mm -hmm. and you guys were able to do an exhibition talking about all this stuff, the, you know, from MLK to March, so it's civil rights and comics exhibition. Finish your thought, but I, I was going to bridge that to the same thing there with you, with talking about both that and the ex exhibition you guys got to do with March and the late great representative John Lewis. Mm -hmm. That book, the Montgomery story, Montgomery story came out in, I think it was 1957. Yeah. Now, just a few years prior to that, we had the publication of Dr. Frederick Wordham's book, Seduction of the Innocent. Now right. that, his whole, his whole thing, his whole position theory was comics were at the root of juvenile delinquency. He just could not be dissuaded from that notion. And he was influential enough and he was persistent and loud enough that they got that book published and that or congressional hearings hearings batman and robin are making your kids gay it was mm -hmm. and then subsequently came the comics code authority which was the comic book industry having to self-police them self-censor themselves essentially exactly and what that did is change the public relationship and perception of comics because comics were created as a dis comic books you know whatever they were created as a disposable medium, but not necessarily, not inherently a juvenile medium. But he changed the public perception of that to they were a juvenile medium. And unfortunately, the reaction of the industry itself was to kind of police itself in such a way that now that just emboldened this perception that it is a juvenile medium. So now they're considered disposable and juvenile. That's a hard place to come out of. Yeah. So, but within just two to three years, we had the publication of March which as far as I'm concerned, totally refutes that position because this is, a, this is a comic book that saved lives, like literally saved lives at that time and has gone on to support activist movements and, uh, and, and social progression around the world. So you can't convince me, you can't hold these two things, these two thoughts at the same time. Like you can't say they're a disposable juvenile medium, but they're also capable of producing this profound life-changing these pr profound life-changing works like it's one or the other and i am obviously i'm gonna gonna favor the, the the latter i got to meet john lewis i was gonna ask to prepare for this i, I was doing some rereading <laughs> and so I, I was going through uh book two of march again which for people that are unfamiliar is John Lewis's comics biography that he worked on with Andrew Aiden and Nate Powell that came out a couple of years ago and is able to kind of frame his story alongside the parallel of John Lewis at Barack Obama's first inauguration. Mm -hmm. That I, so I was asked because it's, you know, it's a three volume series and I was asked by the Pittsburgh Post-Gazette and editor there, Tony Norman, I'll just thank Tony, um, who's, <laughs> just incredibly supportive of our, our regional creators, artists and writers and everybody. So I was asked by Tony to write a review of the third volume of March when that came out. And, it, you know, the, of the three volumes, that's the most dense. There's a lot going on in that in that series, especially in that volume, because there's a lot that was going on in the world at that time. Um, but it, I mean, I, it was it was I, I chose to use it as a kind of a review of the whole series at that point and because you really you need to read all three chapters to really get the most out of it so it was and it was obviously a positive review so the Toonzeum uh held an exhibit not too long after that so this would have been well this was uh actually this exhibit opened just prior to the 2016 election oh. presidential election yeah so <laughs> and they they and invited uh, Mr. Lewis and the book's creators, Andrew Iden and Nate Powell, they invited them to come to Pittsburgh. So the exhibit itself opened at the August Wilson Center in downtown Pittsburgh. <clears throat> and we had an opening reception and he, he, he addressed the attendees and it was lovely. So by that point, I was on the board at the Toonzeum and I was asked if I could more or less to chaperone uh, 
the the three of them when they got to town. So I went over, I walked over to the hotel and met them. And I got to tell you, I walked in the lobby of the hotel and I was actually with Wayne, Wayne Wise, he was with me. So we walk in and the three of them are in the lobby and we introduce ourselves. And uh, Andrew looks at me and he goes, oh, Marcel, you wrote that review for the Pittsburgh Post because that didn't you? And boy was, in that moment, I was so glad that that was a positive review. <laughs> Oh yeah, that could have that could have gotten awkward fast. Yeah, but fortunately we got things off on the right foot. So we we walked back over to uh, the August Wilson Center. We went in the green room for a bit, and there's food and things. And <clears throat> they all three of them were lovely. Uh, Mr. Lewis, he was really great. He now he he was he was older and he was a little more sedate. I got the impression he was a little tired because they'd been promoting this book a good bit, you know. And um, but he was he was he was wonderful. He was warm. He was, he, you know, opened a conversation. We had a nice talk and I got to ask him some questions that I had percolated since I'd written the review. I think that's so, this whole thing is so fascinating because I, I remember having this conversation around the last, the time that he passed last year, right? Mm -hmm. Where John Lewis, to me, feels like one of those people that it's almost hard to believe that I was alive at the same time as. Agreed. Just yes. such like a Titanic figure in this country's history, right? And so to be like in a very casual situation in a green room with him is really kind of funny, right? <laughs> it's, it was, yeah, I, again, things you just couldn't predict. And um, <clears throat> <clears throat> at one point we're talking about, because, you know, the exhibit itself was about the history of political cartoons in the 20th century, specifically civil rights cartoons. And then uh, it focused on the Montgomery story and then the art of March itself. So it was like really a, a chronicle of, the, of this narrative. And so we get to talking about March. So he lets us know. So he got his copy of the Montgomery story directly from Martin Luther King Jr. <laughs> and uh, <laughs> as he's talking about this, you know, that's when it kind of clicked for me like, oh, I am one person in this moment. I am one person removed from Martin Luther King Jr. Like, so, you know, when, when Barack Obama gave, gave representative Lewis's eulogy, he referred to him as, as one of our founding fathers. And I thought that is completely apt. Like I am right now sitting here talking to a founding father who is himself adjacent, directly adjacent to another founding father. And it, he volunteered in that moment, too, in talking about uh, the Montgomery story. He said, you know, a comic book changed my life. And I can't say it validated my life choices because my life, that was, I was on my path. Like, that I was, <laughs> right. Like yeah. I had my mission and all the things. But what it did do is it opened me up to the expanse of the worth of comics. And in my, there are moments now when I look at Hutzpah a lot of moments where I consider what it's hopefully doing out there in the world, because my Hutzpah is also not just meant to document history. It's meant to do much what the Montgomery story did. It's meant to be informative to the world right now and, and, and give you lessons and things that help you walk in the world smarter and, and better and, you know, and, and, and safer. So, and making the world safer with other, for other people as well, like all of that. So, if Hutzpah is capable of producing even one future John Lewis, everything was worth it. But I'm greedy. I don't want to just make one more John Lewis. I want as many, we need as many John Lewises as we can get in the, in the world. That's what we're, we're always shooting for, is that something transformative. I mean, yeah, if you talk about transformative, like I said, I was just rereading that March book, and mm -hmm. there's a scene in volume two where it's aretha franklin singing my country tis of thee interspersed with the freedom riders getting beaten in montgomery and that is like probably one of the more powerful images that you'll see in all of storytelling it's absolutely unbelievable and that's what we're talking about when we're talking about what comics can do for you exactly and you know we're <sighs> And here's where educators come into play with, with this work, because, you know, right now we're talking about comics doing this, this lifting of, of education and opening up minds and making better people. 
but we're a curious species. <laughs> and we're, often when we're given information, new information, you can give somebody the most positive information possible. We can sometimes just take that in whatever direction we want to go. We, we don't always do what we should do with the information that we're given. We don't always take out of it what we should. And so that information needs to be curated in the right way. Like it needs to be delivered with attentive hands. I've, I've taken to recently, I've talking about comics helping us process trauma. And there's a specific Superman story that I reference where there's a machine that allows him to retrieve memories that for even him have been suppressed or buried or that have been lost because of different things. So he, he, he uses this machine to recall his life on Krypton for a group of spectators. Like they ask him, would you use this and describe to us what your life was like as a baby on Krypton? So he uses it. As he's doing so, he describes the last days of Krypton up to and including when he was sent away, when his father puts him in the rocket, his mother and father, they put him in the rocket ship and they send him away and, and, and the planet explodes. And I had this comic when I was, I don't know, when it came out, it was like 1979, I believe. And I understood it. I mean, by that point, I was already a Superman authoritarian. You know, I could have told you all sorts of stuff, how tall he was, how much he weighed, where he's from, what his real name was, what it, and all that stuff. But I was still developing as, a, as an adult. I was still a child. So there was a place where it sort of ended. And then I re-encountered the story a few years ago. I got, I came across the same issue. And I read that sequence because it, that sequence ends with Superman being so overwhelmed with these memories as the planet explodes and his parents die, he knows he's never going to see them again. He actually breaks out of the machine and, and is reduced to tears. Now you never see Superman cry because he's Superman. That sequence hit me so hard as an adult. It would have been inconceivable for me as a child, even as a child in a, in a, with a home life that was just so tumultuous, I could not have conceived what that kind of pain was. But as an adult, you learn what loss is. You learn what that with the kind of trauma that does to you and it, like in that moment my heart went out to superman in a way it never did when i was growing up because i was able to see this character this primary colored character as a real person and what happens when we look at these characters who have all gone through their various degrees of trauma yeah can i, can I hop on this i've, I've got a story that i think it relates to it. this last year during the pandemic i reread a bunch like a hundred plus issues of justice society okay which you know if, if you're if you again if you're not a comics fan justice society that's the old guys <laughs> not the predecessors, justice League, the predecessors right and uh, there's an issue of justice society where with our man and you know the idea of our man he hits this button on his wrist and he gets superpowers for one hour right and there's also this super comic booky plot line, right? Where he's the second hour man. His dad was also our man. And this is a Father's Day issue. Oh, boy. And our man's dad is, is like trapped in this time loop, essentially. And so he has one hour, basically, in this hourglass. And our man has the ability to visit his dead father for one hour. Oh, man. And so a lot of times it's like, you know, there's some, you know, world destructing thing happening. And so I'm going to get his advice really quick. He knows what to do because once that hour's over, it's over. Right. And in this Father's Day issue, it's just him breaking down and I, I just need to talk to my dad. And it's not like there's some catastrophe mm -hmm. happening. It's just, he needs to be there. And it, a, an adult man, it broke me. <laughs> it broke I, me. Yeah. I, yep. That's what they did. The best of them do that. Yeah. They do that. And I think what happens when you're when you're younger and you read these narratives and you you know, you hopefully haven't been through the things that would let you perceive them the way you would as an adult. You know what those things, those stories are doing is they are priming us for what we're going to experience in the real world. They are they are informative to that. So they are they are preparing us to deal with trauma, both our own and the trauma of the people that we will interact with. And like the stories, like, like what you just said, like it, it is priming us to be more intuitive and understanding and compassionate, hopefully, of what other people are, are, are dealing with. So now you, you come to the other side of it and you revisit these narratives, these same exact narratives, 
and now you can see them with completely different eyes. You know, so if you are the, the, the family of a Holocaust survivor, and you know, when we, again, when we started the Hutzpah Project, we knew of people who's like their families had a certain regard for their, their, their survivor family members as victims because they had been through something incredibly victimizing. So you would, you would perceive that. So the intent of the superhero metaphor was to revisit and, and hopefully adapt how we look at those specific people, like the reframe it, reframe it. Exactly. Because even and people who survived and even people who didn't survive, like there's, there is built in resilience and resistance involved in what they, they, what they went through. So honoring that and the heroism involved, you know, just by living today and going on with your life, you know, that is a, that took super heroic effort, whether you were aware of it or not. So these stories we read, no matter how juvenile some people might think they are, or how disposable some people might think they are, they are anything but. They are transformative and they support us as human beings so we can reframe these narratives and see everyone ideally. The goal is to see as many people in, in the world in that light as humanly possible. But if people who've managed to be able to push through trauma, you know, you, you've got to respect that. Um, we had we had one of our survivors who passed away a couple of years ago. And this is somebody who we had uh, interacted with a good bit. His name is, it was Sam Gottesman. And Sam, he, was, he had been active as one of our survivor speakers. You know, he would come in, talk to classes. We would take him out to some of our schools so he could talk to classes, facilitate the uh, discussions like that. He was very good about telling his experience. And so I had heard his story and then he passed away and then the, you know, we, the, the staff at the Holocaust Center, we went to his memorial service and I believe it was, it was either his son or his caregiver was uh, giving one of the eulogies and they said something very simple and they just said how he had gone through a lot in his life and especially, you know, when he was younger, like he had, he had, he had suffered a lot. I don't know why, but in that moment, that hit me more than, and I'd heard his story. That was the thing. I knew, I was familiar with his story. It, there was an immediate connection that was forged between my own experiences. And suddenly I really understood about like how much he had gone through. And I just start crying and I tell you, but it's, again, you get joy. You can, there is joy to be found in that. I am, I am glad that I had that moment of realization of the, the, the enormity of what this person's life had been. And hopefully we keep that alive. We keep putting that out there. We, you know, his, his, his story has been documented. We have archived that we still, you know, that story still has purpose. It has a living purpose. Um, and, and with the help of all the educators that we encounter, you know, we're able to keep all of these narratives alive and, and also teach students how to, tap into the narratives around them every day. You know, we want them to be as aware of like community activists doing the work to make their worlds better and, and make just making them more aware of that. Like that didn't stop here. Like that keeps going. For sure. All right, last question I've got for you. Okay. I want to bring us back to comics. You know, we've been, we've been talking about it this whole time. <laughs> but one of the things I was thinking about is, you know, I hope that this hasn't, you know, people haven't been super confused by the references we make. And, you know, I feel like comics has this reputation for being this impenetrable medium because you've got 85 years worth of Batman to think about. Where do I even start with anything? And I do, If I, I hope, and obviously, if you're going to read anything after listening to this, you should be reading Hootspaw. You should be reading your, you should be reading that. <laughs> but that, and what else, what, for people, if you're ever, you know, people are trying to get into comic books, what are the recommendations that you typically make? Because I've got some fun ones, too, that I, that I brought up. Some, some independent books, too. So what, about, what are some of the ones that you immediately gravitate towards if someone asks you? Well, and I, I will also point out, anybody who's, like, Hood's Pal is available, I mean, for most people out there in the world, it's available on Amazon. That's the easiest place to get it right, right now. And we also have a teacher's resource guide. And any educator, or if you know an educator, like I, I advise get it, get the teacher's resource guide because I use that all the time myself, just because that's 
filled with just all the supplemental material. It's got curriculums, but it's also got like appendices and histories. It's like it's, it's they go hand in hand and they're, they're wonderful things. All right. So just as we're bringing things back around, everything comes back to Superman for me. The best Superman story, like I would, did I would just say cold? You don't, you know, you don't know all the stuff and the stuff you do. You don't need to worry about it. Read All Star Superman. I thought that you were going to go with that's uh, my favorite uh, writer of all time, Grant Morrison. Really? Okay. Yeah. Mm-hmm. All Star Superman is it's it's the self-contained narrative. It's it's like if you get the collection, it consists of like twelve issues that were originally published. It's just beautiful and humane and lovely and it answers the reason like why why is superman you know why is he worth all this adoration like here's why like if you read that story and you don't quite get it i don't know if you ever really will but that it's it's just it's a lovely story and it also just shows you how superhero comics in particular how they can work at their best an incredible frank quietly art yeah oh god yeah it's that's a series i go back and like i'll just look at the art you know like i'll just stop and restudy art that i've looked at the first page of all-star superman has his origin it's a one-page origin that reads just like that but it's the it's brilliant it's like here he is let's go and it's just perfect it's just a such a well-done narrative read read march all three volumes what is it american born chinese we we referenced gene lu and yang earlier on yeah Mm-hmm. like that's a that's a great great book like definitely read it. and you also referenced yeah well we referenced him because he's the writer of superman, superman smash the clan. clan um which is there's another one uh to, to read so many oh i yeah, i was gonna go i'm going indie too i was gonna say uh check please have you heard of the series check please by ngazi uh kuza no but it's a coming of age story about a college hockey team. It's charming. It's funny. Again, if you're not into superheroes, this is just like a coming of age story about college kids playing hockey in the Northeast. And it's fantastic. Uh-huh. And if you want to get, if you want to get a lot more like weird and sci-fi than that, Xander Cannon series, Kaiju Max is unbelievable. And it's a Whoa. prison drama starring Kaiju and monsters. Whoa. There's a couple over there to check out, and it's something that there's no barrier to entry. There's no 85 years worth of continuity to think about. There's an there's an older series that was one of my first introductions to the complexities possible in making comics, and this it stands kind of wildly apart from a lot of what we just discussed. But just in terms of like complex, mature narratives, um, it's American Flag by Howard Shaken. Mm, yeah, of course. Uh, I. <laughs> cannot necessarily endorse a lot of where Howard Shaken is at right now. And that, that holds true with a lot of comics creators, you know, anymore when I give presentations on comics, the first thing I address is a acknowledgement of comics history of non-inclusivity and misrepresentation. I do that all the time because you have to, because, you know, a lot of this discussion was, you know, about the upsides of comics and, why they're amazing and it sounds like I got stars in my eyes and I do like I think in comics but I you can't think in comics without thinking also about okay let's talk about what comics have historically gotten wrong misrepresentation and non-inclusion both on the actual comics pages and behind the scenes in terms of their creation that's a problem so I also like to make myself as public as possible so people can see like here's a black man making comics with social worth so that they can like this is there's anybody can do it you know like you, you're not hindered by your background by your gender identity by your orientation by that's your that's right that's why we were just in our recommendations highlighting we talked about gene lu and yang we talked about ingazi ukazu a lot of creators of color on the independent scene that are doing incredible work my friend yona harvey who is also oh my gosh how am i not plugging some of my comments about people yona harvey who has worked on two issues of, of hutzpah so far so she is a poet extraordinaire she's a friend extraordinaire so she has worked on that's a great title friend extraordinaire friend extraordinaire i know i need to i need to get some t-shirts and send those to people because it's true she's she's worked on uh the the black panther books world of wakanda world of wakanda and um so any if you see her name associated with anything go get that thing go check that thing out she's friends with tanahasi coates who actually wrote black panther and then wrote captain america America, yeah his name is now attached to this uh, an upcoming Superman movie. 
read what he has to write because he is somebody who has something to say. His Black so, Panther is just awesome. It's just like straight up comics awesome along with that. When that movie came out, you know, I, I remember saying to the, I, I got to speak. Well, I did go to a, like a premiere at Chatham. I went to another one and, and I was able to address the audience, you know, like, hello, we have a local comics creator, Marcel Walker. Hello, everybody. But I remember saying to the, the attendees, because I'm looking out, it's like all these different people, young people, old people, white people, and black people and young and just like just men and women. I was like, you know, when I was eight years old, <laughs> I remember being taken to go see Superman, the movie for the first time. And so and this is back when movies were just in theaters forever. So like it came out in like December of 78. It wasn't until I think maybe March or April of 79 when I actually got out to see it. So one of my cousins took me to see it. So this was at a movie theater in the neighborhood East Liberty here in Pittsburgh, a historically black neighborhood. And at the time, there were still two movie theaters there. And we went to one of them and saw it. So I got this experience of seeing Superman the movie when I was eight years old in a movie theater full of black people. I'll tell you, that was an experience and it was, but it was great. Like it was, I, I always think of that audience who I saw that movie with first. So I was telling the audience at the Black Panther premiere this same story. And I was like, you know, but here's what I didn't have. I didn't have the chance to see a movie featuring a black character and a black world, more than just a black character, just a black world that exists on its own terms, playing to an audience of everybody. So like, you know what, you all, and I was like, you know, I can imagine what it's like to be an eight-year-old today who gets to experience that. Like, like, much like my cousin who wanted to see that, that particular comic, the one with the brother on the cover. Nowadays, there are comics and there is comics-related media that is much more reflective of a, of a vast myriad of experiences. And that just needs to keep growing. I just want to see it keep growing. Who knows, you know, like there might come a day when Hutzpah makes a jump in media and we see it in some other form and it's able to reach an even broader audience yet and people see these stories and they connect with some of the people because already our stories you know we have a very a very multicultural creative teams that work on it we curate that on purpose that just allows the stories to connect in even broader ways and the stories themselves have just broader reach and who so who knows who's going to connect with this and who knows who's going to be inspired down the road and they'll have the experience of this year you know, that'll be incorporated into their life work. And, and hopefully they're, they're, we're just making better people. <laughs> and they'll talk about, you know, that great guy they listened to on that podcast. Who, <laughs> you're like, I got to hear what he's talking about. And there you go. There you go. All right, Marcel. Hey, thanks so much, man, for jumping on and talking everything from your work, just talking comics in general. It's an absolute pleasure. Same here, Peter. Thank you for work you do and the platform you're giving all these wonderful educators and i just i want to just please keep doing that and uh, anytime you want to talk shop please give me a call <laughs> i live to talk about this stuff <laughs> thanks for listening as always feel free to nominate a teacher in your life to be on our show it's how we get great guests like marcel the email is teacherslounge at niu.edu wherever you're hearing the podcast leave a rating share it subscribe whatever you can do it helps us get more awesome people like Marcel. Thanks to the Northern Illinois band Kindos for the awesome music you hear every episode. Shout out to Spencer Tritt for our Teacher's Lounge logo. And I've been your host, Peter Mudlin, and we'll be back with more Teacher's Lounge so very soon. We'll see you later.